Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Welcome. We're starting into the final chapter of Philippians this morning, and we hope to finish this book in time for Holy Week, which is just about five weeks from now. And then after Easter, we are going to dive into a short series on the Old Testament prophet Jonah, which is a marvelous book, has a lot to teach about the character of God as opposed to our character. (laughs) It's a very, very helpful and insightful book, cutting book. Today, though, we're looking into the first three verses of this final chapter of Philippians, chapter 4, and we encounter here the first in a line of concluding exhortations that the Apostle Paul makes to his friends that flow out of the gospel truths that he's been mounting over the course of the book. He's bringing it all to bear here at the end and some practical matters for his friends. Let's read it together. This is Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. This is the God's word, and it is eternally true. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, Philippians marks a turning point in this letter. Paul is moving from the great truths of the gospel that he has been laying out into practical matters of application, and that is the general pattern of New Testament teaching. Truth first, application second, generally speaking. You can even see this, observe it pretty clearly in the way a lot of the New Testament epistles are laid out. Truth in the front matter, application in the back matter, more or less. Uh, The early Presbyterians in America recognized this pattern and formulated into a principle. Truth is in order to goodness. Truth is in order to goodness. There's an order, a logic, and an inseparable connection between the two. We're saved. We're not, we don't obey in order to be saved. That's not gospel. We're saved in order to obey. And we're saved in order to obey. That's the New Testament emphasis. The Apostle Paul is never one to put truth up in a, on a pedestal in a glass case and admire it only. Look at that glorious truth. He, uh, he lets it loose, lets it fly in order to put it to some practical work. Truth is meant to lead to goodness. And Paul always uses that, it that way. There's always a therefore coming in Paul's writing by which he lassoes all the truth that he's been uh, building, and, and he pulls it in to some uh, matter of application, puts it to work. So what is the truth that Paul is lassoing here? He starts this section with a therefore. Therefore, in light of all the things I've been saying, here's what it means for you guys. Here's what you need to do. What's the truth he's lassoing in and bringing in? Well, most immediately, all that he's been saying in chapter 3 which where he's been talking about um, how the gospel and faith in Jesus and knowing Jesus results in a transformed life, in a new way of thinking and being, with new motivations and purposes, new aims, new power to achieve those aims. And he just got done saying at the end of chapter 3, a new citizenship status. He says, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Jesus Christ, we receive a new citizenship card, a new status. We're transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of Jesus, the beloved Son of God. We're citizens of that kingdom, and that has implications for how we go about living our lives here and now. That's what Paul's getting into, the implications. Notice that he says it's our citizenship back in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship together. Those who belong to Christ are citizens together of this eternal kingdom, and we wait this Savior together. That is an important point that Paul is bringing to bear 
here at the end. But he's also lassoing in earlier truths from chapter 2 and even as, as early as the end of chapter 1 where he emphasized the need for Christian unity, the need to have oneness of mind and heart towards each other in all that we do as the body of Christ. And what it takes to do that, he says, is that we have a humble attitude and that we look at each other and we prefer one another as better than ourselves. That's what, that promotes unity. And, that, and he says, he talks about how Jesus gives the ultimate example of this for us as he humbled himself from the highest heaven, gave up all his prerogatives in order to serve us. He became our servant, lowered himself to the lowest place of the greatest humility in order to serve us. And because of that, God has highly exalted him, put his forever approval on that mentality and that way of being by exalting Jesus to the highest place. Paul's lassoing all of that great stuff, all those amazing truths in, and he's pulling it in here now into chapter 4, bringing it to mind and saying, here's what it means. Here's what it means for you guys. And he does so in a very personal way, much more personal than he usually gets. He always has application for the church. But it's rarely quite this personal. He names names. He calls out a couple of ladies in the church, a couple of sisters in particular. And he calls them to be harmonious and to walk in unity with each other. And he asks somebody else who's in the room, who he refers to as his true companion or yoke fellow in verse 3, to work with these women towards that end. I think this is the real reason for this letter. The, the, the occasion for the letter is, I mean, officially, this is a thank you letter of friendship, responding and expressing thanks to the Philippians for their gift, their generosity towards him in his time of need. But I think the real reason that Paul writes this letter is to address this issue, this division between these two women in, in the church, between Euodia and Syntyche. He, he is writing this letter to, he, he has heard, well, they, they have sent him, the Philippians have sent him not only money, but their best man, a good man, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has downloaded the state of things to Paul. So he's very aware from one of their leading men how are things are going? And he's heard about some external pressures that are faced, the church is facing and feeling, and he has addressed some of that as they, he's gone along. But he's also heard clearly about an internal pressure, an internal conflict that is threatening to divide the church and upset the unity of the body of Christ there in Philippi. And so Paul now turns his attention to that. And he has been mounting quite the case for unity along the way. Quite the case. Can you imagine being present at the reading of this letter? Can you imagine being one of those women that Paul is naming? You're going along and you're thinking, man, we're just having a wonderful letter of truth and glorious truth from our dear Apostle Paul. Oh, amen and amen. Now I urge you, Eodia and Syntyche, Whoa, whoa, aren't you glad I don't make a habit of calling you out by name? You know, the Apostle Paul didn't either, for the most part. And this is a principle of how the church responds to issues. The church is involved in our lives. There's lots going on, lots of sin that we're wrestling with, lots of disagreements and um, strife in the church. This is very common. And, it's, and it is in a good and healthy church being dealt with in faith and with faithfulness. But we don't all know about it. The principle is that Jesus himself laid out in Matthew 18 is that people shouldn't, more people shouldn't know than that need to know. That there is, a, like the, the, the response to the issue or the sin should be no more public than the sin or the issue is. And as much as possible, we should work out our disagreements with one another personally, privately. And then that's the end of it. And only as that doesn't work do we progress to later stages. 
Well, sometimes the, the issue is of such a public nature, the sin is such a, of a public nature, that we just jump right in to one of the later stages and the church gets involved more formally or things have to be addressed more publicly because of the public nature of the crisis. And I think that's what we can assume is happening here at this point in the letter, as Paul takes this in hand and deals with it openly. And I want to pause before we get into the details of this, just to recognize that these little verses are a window into a reality, a biblical reality, a New Testament reality that as Americans with our individualistic, autonomous approach to things and assumptions, we, we get wrong. When we read the Bible, especially the New Testament, with our American glasses on, with our American assumptions about life and individualism, we miss the Bible. We don't understand the context at all, and we're taking things and applying them uh, in the wrong way quite often. This is just a little window into something the New Testament talks about all the time, which is life together. Life together. We are not saved into a life of spiritual autonomy and individualism. The Bible calls those who are in Christ one new people together, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We've been called out of that kingdom into this kingdom together. One people of God, destined to spend eternity together with one another and with our Lord. It refers to us, as Paul uses here in the analogy here in this book, as citizens of a kingdom together. We are citizens together of a kingdom. It, ta- it gets more personal, though, more familial, when it talks about us being of one household, the household of faith, the household of God, under one Father with one Lord, one head. It gets even more uh, intimate when it talks about us being one body. One body. We are each members together individually of one body. And Paul puts, to put a real fine point on it, Paul in Romans 12 says we are members of one another. We belong together. We are intrinsically linked in Jesus Christ in the most intimate way. Bound together like an ankle is to a leg, or a hand to an arm, or a neck to a torso. We belong together in Jesus Christ. This may be an unusually specific moment of Paul speaking, very personal, but it is this context, the context of family, and of gathered and of assembled people, that Paul and the New Testament writers are writing into. The, the, the modern, distinctly American idea that, that, that a Christian can be a Christian on his own is something completely foreign to the New Testament. It doesn't have a category for that, for the Lone Ranger Christian. It would not recognize that at all. People who are churches unto themselves... We've seen this a lot lately if you've been watching the football. You see famous football stars and you think on the one hand, man, that's great that he kneels before the game and prays. It's great that he always gets in his glory to God before, you know, as the news camera turns to him before they can cut him off. That's great. I love it. But you also have to wonder, where is the church in that man's life? How does he maintain in that world playing his games on Sunday? Any real meaningful connection to the body of Christ? That, well, the New Testament would have hardly any category for that man. The New Testament also would not recognize a Christian organization, we'll call it, that specializes in, in uh, respecting our desire for autonomy and privacy and an- anonymity while providing us this a good way to satisfy our sense of, our felt need for a church experience. (laughs) Do you know the kind of churches I'm talking about? Where you can be a part of it, you can enter into the experience and feel like you got what you were after without any accountability, without having to know one another, without having to be known by other people, without having to know the pastor's sins or him knowing your sins. The church according to the Bible, 
is completely different from that. That is all around us today. So many churches specialize in providing people just that while respecting their desire for aloneness. The New Testament doesn't recognize it. It's incomprehensible. We belong together. The biblical model is Christian faith nurtured and lived out in the intimate context of spirit-filled fellowship in the body of Christ. Day by day, week after week, year after year. It's life together. That's the biblical model. Life in Christ is life together. It is life in the church. Scripture has a lot to say about this life together. This is the context that the New Testament writers are speaking into. It's speaking to people who are a body. And it's talking about body life and the kind of beliefs that give birth to it and encourage it and and help it grow and advance. This just gives us a little window into that life that is the life of the New Testament. And I think this teaches us three really important things, this little episode that Paul is addressing, three important things about how we should approach our life together. That's what I want us to see. The first thing that I think this teaches us is that life in Christ, life together, should be permeated by genuine affection for our fellow believers, genuine affection for one another in the body of Christ. We see this in verse 1, in Paul's own example. He's told us to follow his example in chapter 3, and here he is showing and setting a good example for this kind of affection that we should carry in our hearts and express to one another. In verse one, uh, the, This disagreement, by the way, between these two, women, these, these two women, whatever it was, was undoubtedly very awkward for everyone. This is, we assume that this is because of Paul addressing it publicly, that this is publicly known. Most people are somewhat aware of this division and are caught up in it to some degree. It's, un, it's awkward. It's difficult. It's parsing the church. Bear with me. Getting ahead of myself. And Paul has decided that he needs to address it publicly and take it in hand. Having heard this report, he sees it as his job to communicate. But to, take the, to talk about the elephant in the room is difficult business. It's tricky business. It's, it's difficult. It would have come as a shock. But notice how Paul prepares them to hear this, to hear him dive into it. How does he prepare them? Look at the terms of affection he uses in verse 1. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Do you hear the tenderness? In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's laying it on pretty thick. And a cynic would say, Oh, Paul, you're just being manipulative. You don't want them to be mad at you, so you're just, you know, you know laying on the terms of affection in, a, in a, a manipulative way. That's not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has real affection for, the, for these people. He has suffered for them, suffered to give them this life, this identity in Christ, to, to preach the gospel to them. He got beat with rods for it. He's not a sentimental guy. He really loves these people. And this is genuine affection. And this is fatherly care. He, is, he knows he's about to poke the bear. And so he is, he is reminding them of his real affection as he touches a sore spot and lands as a boil in the church. What do we learn from his use of these terms and his, this sign of his affection? That affection should be among us. We should have real love and genuine affection for one another. And that should express itself in the way we go about talking to one another. This should lead in our conversations, in our conflicts, in our work to resolve them. Affection goes a long way. 
I learned this when I came here to this church. This was new to me. I didn't grow up in church with people calling me brother. I didn't grow up with a brother in Christ saying, I love you. But I learned that here. And that comes from the Bible. That comes from the Apostle Paul. Some of us even dare to kiss one another. That's biblical. It's biblical. Are the people of God dear to you? Are they dear to you? I don't mean the idea of the people of God. I mean the real ones. (laughs) The people. The ones in the pew or the seats, the row next to you. The ones in your small group. Your wife, husbands, in the Lord. (laughs) Your husband, wife. Do they have your heart? Do they know your affection and do they feel it? Paul's being a good model of the kind of affection that we should carry in our hearts for one another and of expressing it. Paul, like David before him, loved the brethren. David wrote in Psalm 16:3 these words, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Do you delight in the people of God? Do you think David actually knew people when he wrote that? Or was he just thinking about the cosmic idea of people? (laughs) No, David knew people. Paul knew people. And they were willing to love them in spite of their faults. Despite the fact that they are often annoying and difficult to put up with. Tedious. Opinionated. And that that presents difficulties and obstacles to being patient and kind and accepting them. David and Paul loved people in spite of themselves and because of themselves, because God had loved them and had bought them at an incredible price and had incorporated them into himself and into his family. And so they had this kind of love. And they nurtured it in themselves, and they communicated it to others. Do you do that? Could the same be said of you? Do you have this perspective on the people of God? Are you cold and standoffish towards God's people? Paul is showing us the way that we ought to be. That's the first thing. Our life together should be permeated with real affection. The second thing that I think we see here is this. That life in Christ requires a commitment to walking in unity with fellow sinners. Life in Christ, life together, requires a commitment to walking in unity with fellow sinners. What was the issue that arose between these sisters? We're not sure. We're not told. And interestingly, Paul doesn't weigh in on who's right and who's wrong. And I think that can, right there rules out some possibilities that must not have been a core gospel issue because Paul is never shy or sparing when it comes to matters of the gospel. But with secondary matters, Paul is magnanimous himself and he encourages patience and acceptance on secondary matters among God's people. But beyond this, we don't know what it is. We're not told what it is. Perhaps it was a difference of opinion that arose over some, one of these secondary matters. You know how we have this tendency to turn our preferences into principles. We can get really hot under the collar and really intense about things. Do we do that? And they're not unimportant things, okay? I'm not trivializing all of the, the secondary matters of life. They're not unimportant But we can, get, we can make them of too much importance. They can become something that divides us very easily. Do we, do we do this? Are we in danger of turning secondary matters of conviction or viewpoint into things that divide us? Anybody remember 2020? What we should do in response to government mandates what our involvement and relationship with the state is, 
lots of discussion, tons of discussion and disagreement. Not unfruitful discussion, but potentially divisive. Maybe it was something like that. Whether to mask up or not, I don't know. It was something. I don't think it was just a, some crotchety old women. That does not seem to suit the dignity that Paul gives them here. They have served alongside him, fought the good fight. They're mature, but they have found some, some cause of disagreement, or perhaps some offense has been taken by one of them towards the other, that the other one re- refuses to acknowledge as having any validity at all. Do we ever do that? Does that threaten our unity? Taking offense and then the other person not responding to us definitely does. And what can set in easily is a kind of cold war. And other people get caught up in it and feel like they've got to take sides. Imagine if me and Pastor Max had some matter of disagreement. And what settled in was this sort of, we planted our feet and we started to get kind of cold towards each other. Wouldn't you all feel that? Wouldn't it be incredibly uncomfortable and difficult? I think that's something that's going on here to some degree in the Philippian church. And Paul is trying to head it off and to bring them into unity and to reconciliation together before it causes damage. Now, when this happens, when what, whatever this issue is, we don't know, but when this kind of thing settles in to people in the church, between important people or between brothers and sisters in the church, who is responsible to make the first move? Yes, is the answer. Yes. Look at it. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. They both get the same urging equally. I urge you and I urge you. There's always two sides to any disagreement or dispute. You know that? The author Solomon in Proverbs uh, he says this in Proverbs eighteen seventeen: the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. There's always two sides to any dispute or viewpoint or issue, two ways of seeing it at least. And the truth is often somewhere between them. And there is very often, almost always, fault of some measure on both sides. Unity and peace, harmony in the Lord, can only be restored, maintained, if there is a commitment to working towards that peace and unity on the part of all parties in humility. If there's humility on both sides, that's what's required. I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine who's suffered in the ministry at times, And looking back on some difficult matters, he just has said this, and it stuck with me. If only there had been 5% humility in that person. Only had been just, that's all I'm asking for. Just give me 5% humility. I think we can get there. We can get a lot done with just a little bit of humility. It requires... In order to maintain peace in the church between warring parties, there has to be commitment to, and humility to pursuing that peace together. You know, some people seem shocked when there is a division in the church or a sin in the church or, you know, someone insults somebody else intentionally or unintentionally in the church. Some people are just shocked that that could ever happen among the people of God. And in a sense, they're right. This should not be. We should be working towards greater maturity, greater godliness, greater peace all the time. We shouldn't be satisfied with what we have. We should be aspiring towards greater and greater unity and love and um, peace in the church. That should be our aspiration. But we also, to be shocked 
that there's, the, that there's difficulty, that there's offenses um, taken, given, taken in the church, to be shocked by that is, is naive. It's naive. We are not yet perfected people. And we are running into each other's lack of perfection all the time. We each have imperfect knowledge. But we don't remember that. (laughs) And so the way we see it's the way it is. We each have imperfect godliness. And boy do we feel that in our relationships with each other. We each have imperfect character. (laughs) And that imperfection is running into each other constantly. This is why the New Testament, this reality is why the New Testament puts so much, so much emphasis on the need for charity, patience, long-suffering, kindness. I mean, this is all over the place, that we're urged constantly to put on a heart of compassion towards each other, to have a forgiving attitude towards one another and a forgiving heart. There's a great emphasis of the New Testament. There is a multitude of sin in the church needing a lot of love to cover it. Have you ever run into this reality? Anybody taken offense by somebody in the church before? Somebody in small group hard to put up with? Hard to be patient with? How are you responding to that? Are you right now in some kind of standoff or cold war between somebody here? You know what helps a lot? You're not going to like it. Remember yourself. Remember yourself. Remember your sin. Remember the cost that, it, that God paid for you pay for your sin. Remember yourself. Remember your ignorance and your stupidity. (laughs) Consider who you are and be humble. It doesn't solve every problem. It goes a long way to helping. It goes a long way to helping you have that heart of compassion towards other sinners. When you remember the grace of God for you. It's like that that parable of Jesus, the man who's been forgiven this huge, vast debt, who then in turns and, uh, with greed and stinginess towards this guy who owes him a hundred bucks or less and is like, pay everything you owe me. Oh, this is how we can be towards one another, and it ought not to be. Remember yourself. Remember your sin. Remember you're a sinner. Consider that you are your own special pill. That everybody else around you has to swallow. Can we have 5% humility, please? It goes a long way. Are you, being at, are you doing what you can to be at peace with your brother? And if you're sitting there hearing that, thinking immediately, automatically, about what people are not doing that they should to be at peace with you. You're not hearing me. Are you doing what you can to be at peace with your brother? Unity is a big deal to the Lord. It's of vital importance. We are all supposed to be working diligently to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says that as, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What does that require? Humility. Humility. Life in Christ requires a commitment to walking in unity with fellow, fellow sinners. Sinner with sinner. I'm one, you're one. That hurt, let's work through it as sinners who share responsibility for the difficulties that we face. It doesn't have to be perfect, equal responsibility, but responsibility shared. Okay, 
You hear me? Lastly, life together in Christ involves a humble reliance on the help of the church. On the help of the church. These sisters needed help. They needed help. They could not resolve this alone, and they needed help. Paul calls on help from a trusted third party. Look at verse 3. He calls this person true companion. Another translation would be yoke fellow. Or somebody who walks along besides, them, uh, besides the Apostle Paul, who he, he considers a fellow workman. And he's referring to this guy. My fellow, true, my fellow yokeman, my true companion, I ask you also to help these women. We do not know who Paul's referring to with certainty. There's been a lot of really interesting theories throughout history about who this true companion is. One of, the, one of the funniest ones, and it goes back to the early church, is that this was Paul's wife. That Paul had a wife, and he, he calls her my true companion, and he's asking her to step in and help. I think Calvin does a really good job of debunking that one. My favorite uh, theory is that this is Luke. And when I said that, Tim Wagner goes, yes! So I, I guess this is something he cares about a lot in the first service. But I have Tim Wagner agreeing with me. Now, there's good reason for that. The timeline of Acts and the, uh, Luke's use of we, he wrote the, the, the book of Acts. And as the narrator, he inserts himself by sometimes saying, we did this and we did that. And then sometimes he's, he's absent. The we goes away. Well, that lines up very well with a long season of ministry that appears that Luke spent in Philippi. And then... At the end of Paul's, well, Paul, he, he travels with Paul to Rome in imprisonment, but by, by the time this letter is written, it appears that nobody helpful is with Paul. They've all gone elsewhere to other useful service. So I think there's a good reason to think this is Luke. Anyway, whoever it is, these women needed the help of the church. They need the help of the church. And that is often the case. We, no man is an island. No man is sufficient in himself to... He, to know his own heart, or to know himself. We do not have objectivity. <laughs> we need other voices speaking into our lives, telling us what they see, telling us what they think about us or about a situation. We need help. No man is an island or able to address every problem he faces. We need counsel. We need rebuke. We need direction. We need adjudication. And that's, that goes for all of us. That's not just for like the babes in Christ needing the help of the church. It is for all of us. These women were mature. They had worked. They were notable, leading women. And they needed somebody to step in and help them resolve their disagreement. Their, their, that, that is no slight to them. This is just the way of things. We need one another. Paul is not shaming them. If it's no slight to them, it's no slight to you or me to turn to the help of the church. Are you in need of the church's help today? With your sin? You need somebody to help bear the burden of your sin. Hear your confession and pray with you. Do you need the help, you need the church's help resolving some conflict or grievance that you have with somebody. You're in some kind of relational stalemate that you don't know how to resolve. Do you need help? Seek it out. There's help all around you in God's people, in pastors and elders and godly people around you. Seek it out. Sometimes it seeks you out. How, what is your response to the help of the church when it is uh, not asked for, but it comes anyway. <laughs> this is really where our commitment to the church and to life in Christ is tested. We like to tell ourselves that if, if only that help had been offered at a more convenient time, if only it had come with, from a different person, if only it had been... <sighs> said in a kinder way, I certainly then would have received it. But since it didn't, I don't have to. 
the church's help never comes perfectly, ever, ever. It is never perfect. It's because it comes through fallen men. Men with feet of clay. Women with feet of clay, just like us. By God's design. This is, there is tremendous help in the resource of one another and of the church. For our sin, for our conflicts, for our marriages, for whatever it is that's difficult. There's tremendous help. But it never comes perfectly. God could have sent angels to administer our rebukes. But he didn't. He sent dummies. Doofuses. Sinners. To us. And this really tests our commitment to Christ and to his church. It grows and tests our humility. You know, when we take our membership vows before one another, there's one of the vows that has something along the lines of the question, will you submit to the church's discipline in your life when you need it? And as seasoned Christians are standing there like uh, many people, parents and pastors and, uh, and others who have been married for a long time at, or think at, at wedding ceremonies or listening to the vows be taken and you're thinking, life's about to hit that person. I wonder how they're going to deal with it. The church is about to hit that church member <laughs> making their vows. I wonder how they're going to deal with it. Parents, I was, at, uh, I was at Presbytery on Friday, and I talked to Joseph Bailey, and he just volunteered this thing, I don't even know what it was connected to, about one of his sons who's been rebuked or graded poorly or something, written up by a teacher. And he said, you know what, I don't think the teacher's right about my son, but you know what? I didn't let my son know that because I know she's right in the general. <laughs> and this is the way it always, often is. The church is often wrong in the specifics or they don't get it quite right, but they are right in the general. And parents, this, is, this tests our commitment to the church when our children come under the care of the Sunday school teacher or of another adult in the church who's trying to get involved in their life and is seeing something of concern and trying to address it, what do you do, parent? Coddle your child, protect them, reassure them that everyone's got them wrong? Or do you teach them this very important lesson that they need to listen to the church? And be humble and correctable. And not proud. These are the kinds of places where our commitment to one another, which is of vital importance in the New Testament, is tested. These are the kinds of places. The church is imperfect. Do we trust her? Do we trust her? Do we listen to her? Do we receive her help? This is the help God has ordained for us. I want to leave us with one closing thought about the importance of Christian unity and pursuing it and working, doing, putting our work in to be harmonious with one another. Why did Paul call on his true companion to help these sisters get along? He gives some reasons. One of those reasons is their Great service that they've rendered. These, these are outstanding women. Please help them. Surely they, they can get along. Help them get along. But he also name, mentions this at the very end of verse 3, that their names are written in the book of life along with everyone else's. These sisters are destined to heaven together. They've been bought with the same price together. God has elected them both to the same great salvation. And that should soften our hearts to one another in, in, in any conflict, in any 
annoyance and any grievance that me and David, let's imagine we're fighting. Let's imagine that I annoy you, David. That David is bought with a price and has been promised heaven and his name is written in the book of life. This is the judgment of charity that we are taught to have towards one another and fellow believers in the church. And that should help us to soften our hearts towards each other. As we remember, we're, we're bound together forever by the blood of Jesus. We're family. More really than bloodlines. More eternally than anything. There is no more important, significant bond in the world than this, that we're under the blood of Jesus together. And that should soften us towards one another and help us. We should always remember that in our conflicts and our difficulties. We need to learn how to live with one another. Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful sermon called Heaven, a World of Love or Charity. And the basic argument is heaven is a world of love where this abounds and there's no difficulty and strife and this incredible picture that he paints. And the application is, the logic is, therefore, as citizens who claim citizenship in that place, we need to be living in that way now towards one another and in view of that reality. Otherwise, it doesn't seem like we're going to be a good fit there. The church should be a world of love. Imperfect, I know. But we're called to it. So let's love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause these truths to remind us that we've been bought with a price and that's because of our sin. Help us to be humble, to be correctable, to be gentle and patient with others because of your incredible patience with us. Help us to live there in that knowledge and to find that that creates a well that overflows from our hearts of compassion and love and tenderness and real affection for other people, other sinners who have the same promises and the same hopes as we. Would you, Father, bless this church with unity, with affection and tenderness, with humility? We need these things, Father, and we depend on you for them. So would you create them in our hearts? Teach us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. It's a good reminder as we come to the Lord's table because as we come, we're not only remembering what He has done, the price Christ has paid for, to, re, to redeem us. We're not only remembering that and pointing to it and testifying about it as we come. We're also attesting to the horizontal realities of that relationship with Jesus. The bond that that creates of unity in the church between believers. We're a family together. This is a family meal. We're we're confessing together our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we come. And so, just as we should not come to this meal with any sin that we're committed to keeping, thank you very much, Lord Jesus, a sin that we won't surrender in humility and repentance to him, So we should not come to this table with any grudge against one another that we're not willing to surrender and see as covered under the blood and see ourselves as probably having some part in it. So we should come humbly, all round humble, okay? If you're in the Lord Jesus by faith, though a sinner... This table is for you, and all its benefits are for you. If you're in the church by commitment, 
and aren't a Lone Ranger Christian trying to go it alone and standoffish from God's people, then this table is for you. And this table is meant to grow our faith and our hope in Jesus, and it's also meant to grow our love and our fellowship with one another. So let it. God works through this table, through this meal, by his Holy Spirit. And may he do these things for us today as we come in faith. Are you humble? Will you let the grudge go? Will you love the person as Christ loves you? Listen to the words of institution as they're delivered by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us into such wonderful communion as this, that coming and eating of these simple elements which you have appointed we can understand ourselves to be fed by you and receiving all of the benefits afresh of your sacrifice. Be present here by your Spirit as we remember you. Make yourself known in our hearts and in our minds and among us in our relationships. Be the peacemaker we need. Fill us with love from you that overflows towards each other. Give us joy and real affection in the saints. Make them our delight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.